please take your Bibles and open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. That's where we're going to uh, go out to the edge of the diving board and jump into this pool. Uh, the title of tonight's message is Paul the Aged. Five things that Paul knew as an aged saint. All right. And uh, number one, put your glasses on. That's point number one, all right? So uh, I switched over to a large print text because last week I struggled so much. I said, forget it. I, I don't have so much pride that I have to carry a small Bible. I'm just going to go with the big blow-up words. And, uh, but, so I have to make some adapting here because the surface area appears a little bit different with the larger Bible. So if my notes are out there hanging off or whatever, hopefully I don't lose them and have to go chase them down. But, uh, so we're making some changes here tonight. But uh, we've been in this series for quite some time, and it seems like I had summer recess, right? Kind of like uh, the state uh, legislature, you know, go away for the summer and come back. Well, that's kind of what I'm doing with this series on the life of Paul. Uh, but we have this message tonight, maybe one or two more, and then we'll wrap that particular series up. Now, the material that we're going to go through tonight is material uh, that Paul wrote towards the end of his life. Uh, he had finished uh, his three missionary journeys and then had been uh, put in prison. And then he wrote what we call the prison letters or the pastoral letters. And so he writes these letters towards the end of his ministry when he's an aged saint. And he's sharing with us some of the things that have happened to him as a Christian. And he shares uh, with us things that he knows that you would know um, when you're an aged saint. Now, uh, several years ago, I was going through uh, a difficult time not knowing what the future was, was holding for my family, for myself. And um, I just had a conversation with my dad on the phone uh, one morning I remember I was sitting in the parking lot across from the care facility, so it was a Monday morning, and uh, I had a few minutes, so I just called him and I said, hey dad, would you just take some time to pray about this? And uh, so he could kind of sense the anxiety that was in my heart, and he said, son, he said, I'm gonna share something with you that Corey Ten Boom uh, shared in a book that she had written. Uh, her quote is this, and I want you to remember it. She said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. All right. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And that was something that, uh, as my dad was an aged saint, uh, been saved for more than 65 years at that point, uh, has just taken time to share with me. And of course, a few weeks ago, uh, we had uh, Dr. Innes, he was with us, and uh, he is now Pastor Emeritus, and I think he was sharing from the overflow of his heart. And there's just a different perspective that the aged saint can share, and the, we're, they've grown in their relationship with the Lord. Now, just personally, in my own life, uh, learning the importance of prayer as I grow older. 
Because when you're younger, you have a lot of energy, a lot of youth, and you just think you're going to carry the weight of the shoulders on, uh, the weight of the world on your shoulders. And uh, then you realize as you grow older, and health begins to impact you, and age gets to you, and you stand up and things pop and, and, and moan just because you moved, right? And you realize, I'm not as strong as I used to. And, well, maybe this is a good thing because the Lord wants me to pray about this instead of just trying to do things. And so tonight, we're going to look at five things that Paul, as the aged saint, knew and that he wants to teach to us. But you don't have to be an aged saint to know these things. So the, the sooner you learn them, the better off you will be. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demoth hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed to Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus until Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me and for the ministry. And uh, Tychius I have sent unto Ephesus, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus. When thou comest, bring uh, with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom do thou beware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At first my defense no man stood with me. But all men forsook me, I pray that it may be not laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me by the preaching, uh, by me the preaching might be fully known, that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto the heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul closes with a doxology, and he wants God to receive the glory by sharing the things that he's learned as an aged saint. Now, there are several things in the text that we're going to look at, but he knew that he had fought the fight. So look with me specifically in verse 7. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Now, earlier in his ministry, he said that he kept his body under lest when he had preached, he had become a castaway. And that's something that I think as a Christian that we always want to be concerned about is that what we preach and what we teach, we actually live. Now with the sin nature, we know we're going to sin and we violate what is, what, you know, is in the scriptures and what we teach and preach and we have to confess our sins. And we do that every day, do we not? All right? And so I know this week I've had to confess sin in my own life. But Paul is saying towards the end of his life as the aged saint, I have done these things. It's written in such the tense that it is a completed action with ongoing results. All right? He had habituated himself. He had been in the habit of fighting the good fight that he developed the right kind of habits that he could say, I've, I've fought it and I've won. 
I've kept the faith. What's been deposited to me, I've been faithful to keep it. All right? I have finished my course. So Paul is coming up to the end of his life, and he's saying, All right, I have fought the good fight. So tonight, remember, the Christian life is a battle. And I'll just be honest with you, primarily the battle is the battle of the mind. All right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ and bringing into subjection or captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The battle is, is uh, waged in your mind, put on the helmet of salvation. Uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Fight the fight. We're never done fighting. All right. So, but through the practice, continual good habits, the battles are winnable more and more and more. All right. And so Paul had won the battle and it has ongoing uh, repercussions in his life where he is saying, look, I have done this. All right. So Paul says that he has fought the fight. The word fought here uh, to, means to engage in conflict. Now, perhaps uh, there's a slight passing reference to the Olympic Games uh, or maybe that military battle. Um, if Paul is in prison, then we know that he had Roman soldiers either chained to him or right outside his cell. So there's not too much imagination that has to go in here to say Paul is using this as, a, as an object lesson uh, about the Christian life, uh, having all of that going on uh, right there next to him. Now, Paul had won many of the Roman soldiers, uh, even of the Praetorian Guard. That, I mean, that was Caesar's, the king's, personal protection regiment. And Paul was leading them to Christ. And uh, so this is where he gets in the book of Ephesians that we put on the whole armor of God. Uh, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, the shoes of the gospel, uh, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, uh, the shield of faith, and above all, praying. Right? So Paul uh, constantly referred to the Christian life as a fight. And then, of course, in Ephesians chapter 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and hosts, uh, of wickedness in, in high places. So, folks, we are in a fight against the devil and his minions. Uh, we're in a fight with the world's value system that is in opposition to the value system of Christ. And then the biggest fight is with your own flesh. Each one is drawn away and enticed of his own flesh. It's the Greek word Idios, where we get not idiot, but idiosyncrasies, all right? The things that make you you, the temptations that will trip you up as a Christian that don't tempt other Christians, all right? Things that are peculiar to you. The devil is not all-knowing, but he is pretty observant. And he watches what trips you up, and then he begins to tempt you with those same things over and over again. So we're in a fight, but Paul knew that he had fought the fight. So it was a well-won fight. Then it was also well-run. All right, I have finished my course. Um, 
We know that the Queen of England passed this last week. Um, some people are saying, was, was she a Christian? Uh, I've seen two pretty good uh, presentations showing that, yes, most likely she was a, a born-again evangelical Christian. Uh, Franklin Graham had shared that uh, Billy Graham had uh, been with the Queen on many occasions, and uh, she would come to the United States and visit him when he would go over there. He was invited to Balmoral Castle, and uh, he believes that she was a Christian. And then a Northern Irish member of British Parliament, um, Ian Paisley, uh, he's now in glory, but um, he also uh, was a born-again fiery preacher. Um, he's free Presbyterian. If you want to hear him preach, you can go to sermonaudio.com uh, and just search for Ian Paisley, I-A-N, uh, Ian, and uh, he has some wonderful messages. And so he was a pastor of a free Presbyterian church in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, but a born-again believer, and uh, with his interaction with the queen, he believed that she uh, was a born-again believer. So she finished her course this last week. Um, Dewey finished his course about a year ago, and uh, these are the aged saints being promoted to glory. Uh, we will eventually finish our course, all right? but will we be faithful in our course? So the Greek word here is uh, for course is translated dromos, which refers to a race course. And so he saw himself as a Greek athlete, not as a Roman soldier, but now is a Greek athlete. And all of the rules of competition that go along with this. Uh, the words are used in the New Testament um, that John fulfilled his course. Uh, we, we see other things that the elders, um, Paul gathered them together in his farewell challenge, uh, the Ephesian elders. And he said, bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of these things move thee, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course, dromos, with joy. All right. Would you just show me your pearly whites and just smile right now? Can remember just to take a deep breath and smile. It'll do you good. So I was coming up uh, from Target this afternoon. Um, I was a little stressed out about the time. I went down there to pick up a, a prescription of medication. And then there were a couple of other things that I was trying to get. And uh, waited forever in line. I was Looking at my watch, it was 5.02, then it was 5.08, then it was 5.13. And this is the self-checkout, right? And so this is supposed to be going quick, and it's not. It's just grinding. And I'm thinking to myself, come on, people, come on, come on, come on. How slow does this have to be? Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And I get up there, and I start scanning my stuff, and the machine freezes on me. And I've got two of the three items checked, and then I can't weigh the bananas. So then I have to call the clerk over, and the clerk comes over, and he points out to my attention. He says, are you paying with cash or card? I said, with cash. He said, you can't use this machine. I'm like, oh, no, really? Oh, we'll put you over on this other machine. Comes another customer, hops up on the machine, takes it. And now it's 527. And I'm like, all right, I'm sorry. I just got to leave. So I just left all the stuff there, all right? And I'm on the way, coming up the hill, and I'm going, <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. 
We're supposed to have joy. Just take a deep breath, Brent. Smile. <laughs> just relax. And uh, so just to have joy. And so sometimes in life we just get that business-like attitude, right? And we just have to, okay, Lord, I'm on the race course, but let me have some joy on this race course. So Paul uh, was running that course, and then it was well done, all right? I have kept the faith, Paul continues. Uh, here, it, it's like the, the word for kept is to keep guard by watching over. The faith is something to watch over. I know I've shared this with you on several occasions, but as I was in that care facility on Monday morning, um, just preaching the gospel, uh, an elderly lady was rolling past and she heard and identified the gospel and she rolled into the room and she just verbally interrupted, the, you know, but it was okay. Uh, she says, I recognize that. That's the gospel. I haven't heard that in years. And she parked her chair, right? Praise the Lord. She recognized the gospel. But does America recognize the gospel anymore? I think that just might be something that's a challenge to the church. Are we keeping the faith? Are we keeping the gospel? Are we guarding it? Are we protecting it? So think about that. So Paul is saying, I've kept it. Uh, just as the prophets of old kept their charge to deliver the word of God. All right. So with death before him, Paul could rejoice that he was not going to end up a castaway. After all, he had finished his course. He had kept the faith. Um, he had uh, won the fight. And so it was a past action with ongoing results. And so Paul knew that. And we can know that too. All right. And you say, well, how can we know that? I want you to go over to 2 Peter chapter 1 for just a moment. And if we keep ourselves yielded to the Lord, then we don't need to worry about losing the battle. Because there is an abundant promise here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, well, verses 10 and 11. Wherefore, the rather brethren, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, give diligence to make your colony election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never, what? Fall. You know why Christians fall? Because they quit fighting the fight. They quit adding to their faith all of the things that were mentioned. Verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I ran one marathon. I will only ever run one marathon. All right. Now, I did several half marathons up to that point, but I remember the day of the marathon. Um, I'll just tell you the story because, uh, well, it was a one-time life event, right? So uh, we had trained and trained and trained, and um, we were going over to Fremont right on the bay. So it's going to be cool, beautiful weather. Well, then we watched the weather forecast, and there's going to be a heat wave on Fremont that day, a micro pocket, a heat wave in the high 90s. So we get there, and um, 
they're like, okay, let's try to start this just a little bit earlier so we can beat the heat. And so there's this guy holding up a sign with the time that I wanted to finish at. I wanted to finish in four hours and 58 minutes. And he was holding up 4.58. I wanted to do it under five hours. And that's what I had trained for. And I knew that I was capable of doing it. And so I walked up to him and said, how many marathons have you run? And it was well over 25, all right? I forget the exact number. So I said, all right, I'm going to run with you, all right? And then he gathered that group together that wanted to run at 4.58. And he said, we're going to run a little bit faster up front so we can beat the heat. And then we'll back the tempo down. Well, he ran us way, well, I ran with him way too fast, all right? For 13 miles, we ran at like an eight-minute mile pace. And uh, I had no energy left at the 13-mile mark. And I figured, well, I've got to walk 13 miles back, so I might as well start walking back. And so about 17 miles, my energy came back. I ran again from 17 to 21. At 23, I bonked, or 21 miles, I bonked again. At 23 miles, I had a little bit more energy. And so I started uh, run walking and then I started getting closer to that finish line and I could hear the announcer calling out people's names and their times. And so for that last mile and a half, I looked at my watch and I'm like, I think I might be able to do it. And uh, so I started pushing and pushing and pushing and I crossed it five hours and two minutes. I missed it by four minutes, all right? But uh, devastating. But nonetheless, I can just remember the anticipation, the excitement of hearing the finish line and coming up and knowing, man, I, I've done it, all right? I've at least been able to walk part of it, but I've done it today. I finished the race. And so here, Paul was excited because he had finished the race. All right, now let's take our Bibles and go to Philippians 1.23. Philippians All right, in Philippians 1.23, the Apostle Paul brings a different perspective on life to us. He says here in verse 23, For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful to you. So Paul was caught between two glorious alternatives. To continue living life on this earth with the saints, he would have an abundant ministry. But to actually be martyred and to go into eternity, that's a far more glorious thing. So his personal desire uh, was to depart and to be with Christ. Now, I know that as a human perspective, none of us want to die, right? We want to live as long as we possibly can. But the aged saint begins to realize, you know what? As nice as this life is, and as good as God has been, and as good as God is going to be until I go home, I know that there is a much better place to be. And that's what the Apostle Paul was saying. 
Now, just a, a little note here. There are Christians that believe in this topic called soul sleep. That when you die, you lose consciousness and you won't have any uh, awareness uh, until resurrection day. All right. Let me ask you a question. How does that line up with what we just read? To depart is a much better experience. I'm sorry, that would not be a better experience to be unaware. All right. So that destroys that particular teaching of soul sleep. Uh, so to depart is to be with who? With Christ. The moment that a Christian dies, he enters into the presence of the Lord Jesus. I know that I've shared this story too, uh, but uh, Ruth Garganus was a veteran missionary to Bangladesh for many years. And um, when they retired, she came home and they ministered here in the States for their retirement years. And on her deathbed, her closing words of life were, I see the river. Amen. So God was giving her a glimpse of where she was going. Folks, heaven is a much better place. Yes, we sorrow and we grieve as one that we love dies. But if they know the Lord, let's rejoice with them. They're in a much better place. And so Paul had a desire to depart. Actually, this is a very interesting word here. Most of the times in the New Testament, as a matter of fact, 31 times, this word epithumia is used in a negative sense over sinful lust. But Paul has a lust here, a heavenly lust, to go to heaven. Now, Paul knew what it was like because according to Corinthians, he had a vision where he was transported to the third heaven. And he saw things that were too wonderful and heard words which were too wonderful to be translated, to be able to articulate them into human language. So Paul knew that heaven uh, was such a wonderful place. He didn't know uh, he, that was such a substantial event in his life that he believed that he could have been physically present at that moment uh, or that he was there in spirit. But he did not know um, at that time, whether he was there bodily or in spirit, but he knew that it was a wonderful place. And so that experience created in him a new lust, a holy lust, a heavenly lust. Paul was lusting to go to heaven so much then that God had to keep him in balance by giving him, according to 2 Corinthians 12, a thorn in the flesh. <laughs> so let's not make it that strong of a lust, all right? But yet there's nothing wrong with desiring to be with the Lord. It's far better to be with Christ Jesus. To be absent from the body is, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be present with the Lord. And so Paul knew that that was a better existence, even though to stay was also a glorious alternative for him. But he knew that heaven was a better place. So are we afraid of dying? Do we regret dying? Well, I don't think a Christian has to regret dying because they're going to a better place. All right, now let's go over to 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And why are we going back to 2 Timothy? Well, this is Paul's last letter to a young pastor 
Paul knows that he's going to be martyred, most likely for his faith. So he's giving instructions to Timothy about how to keep things going. 2 Timothy 2.2 And the things thou hast heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Well, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So before Paul got too excited and uh, went away to heaven, he realized there's a job that has to be done. So the aged saint, in any saint, you'll be better off the earlier you learn this. Your job is to pass the baton to the next generation. Now, how are they described? As faithful. So tonight, I'll just tell you this. I'm 54, I'll be 55 in December. That's very young yet, very youthful, right? So I don't have that, I'm decrepit and gonna die right now, all right? Not that perspective at all. But I do have a desire to take the baton that God has given me and to pass it on. Will you receive it? Will you take it and run your course? Will you run side by side? You see, that was one of the fun things about running that marathon and uh, training was running with other people and especially running with believers as you could talk about how it was such a fitting picture of the Christian life. Um, but there was, it just seemed like you could feed off of that other person's energy as you ran with them. And so Paul is saying, I'm not done yet. Timothy, here's what you've got to do. You've got to be able to hand this off to faithful men, and you've got to then tell them they've got to hand it off to others. So notice the, the four generations that are here. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. So let me just put this down at a practical level. The ongoing success of a local church depends upon the leadership transfer to the younger generation. Let's be honest, we're struggling with that at Calvary. We, we every year come up to our annual business meeting and we say, deacons, ah, all right. Well, I'm not too worried about it because the New Testament church was several thousands and they only had seven, all right. So I'm sure that what we've got is sufficient for the size that we are. And so I'm not worried about the number of deacons. I'm worried about the process. Is this in place? We're trying to hand the baton off. Someone's got to pick it up and go with it. And then we've got to go out and get these disciples. We've got to make them. And so this is our responsibility. And so this is what Paul is telling Timothy. So from Paul to Timothy, faithful men to others, encompasses four generations of godly leadership. That process of spiritual reproduction, which began in the early churches to continue until the Lord comes. Um, so this quote comes from John Phillips in exploring Second um, Timothy. He says this, in this verse, we have the Holy Spirit's formula for church growth. The formula that Paul followed, Paul used no clever, clever tricks. He had no need to promote contests that offered incentives and prizes to the one who brought in the most visitors. 
He did not give away free trips to Jerusalem or arrange conducted tours of Rome. Well, those would have been jail sales, cells. But anyway, he did not give away camels or curios. He did not try to encourage one to compete with another church in reporting conversions and baptisms. He would have scorned such expedients. Paul added people to the church, one convert at a time. His method was like Christ's. The Lord poured himself into a dozen men who, when filled with Christ and the Holy Spirit, poured themselves into others. So this is what an aged saint knew. This is where it is, folks. Uh, many years ago, I sat down with an unsaved man who was a real estate agent for Coldwell Banker in Pleasant Hill. First name was Frank. I'm struggling to remember his last name. But Frank made this observation. He said, when any organization has not had new leaders within three years, that organization is stagnant and dying. And that's how he ran his business. He was training new real estate agents. And by the way, he was one of, actually, he was the top real estate agent for Coldwell Banker in that region. So he knew his stuff and he knew how to continue his office. Well, I knew him for about 10 years, the closing years of his practice as we looked for a church facility. And then he retired and he turned the business over to other people. Uh, and that still kept going. So when we finish our race course, will we be finishing with the baton in our hand? That's a foul. Okay? We've got to pass that baton off. If you're running next to one, you've got to be willing to take the baton and go with it. And then you are responsible for giving it to someone else. So Paul knew this as an age saint. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3.16. Just a chapter over. Something else Paul knew. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly finished unto all good works. Profitable. All right. The Bible has profit. It's going to do you good. It's not going to hurt you to follow what's in the Bible. So, yes, every ministry has some organization, right? But a New Testament church that functions according to the Bible is both an organization and an organism. And the life of the organism is sustained by the Word of God. Folks, this is what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible has everything in it that you need to live your life. The Word of God has all the counsel and all of the guidance and all of the wisdom and all of the help and all of the resources that you need for this life. The Bible is sufficient, thoroughly furnished. Um, the same thing here. It fills out this idea. It's fitted out. All right? So... Um, this week, my son is going to come over from Merced. He's going to pull me out of uh, the rat race and take me over for one day. And I don't know where we're going. I'm just flying by the seat of my pants. I'm trusting him to do this right now, right? But I know that wherever we go, we're going to be thoroughly outfitted to go, even if we go into the remote wilderness. I mean, we have water purification tablets. We have a water purification system. We have 
air-filled sleeping mats, right? That's one of the necessities. We have a bear canister. Um, we have tents. We have fire starter. I mean, we've got everything that we need to do to survive in the wilderness until we get tired of it, right? Now, Lord willing, I'll come back right away because <laughs> I don't want to be out there any longer than I have to be. But uh, to be fitted out, all right, to have all the equipment. Now, that's pretty cool when you see somebody that has all the nifty little gadgets and tools for their trade. Um, years ago, there was a man in our church that he was an iron worker, and uh, he had all of the, the, the gadgets and all of the tools that an experienced iron worker needed to do the job. And um, the number one tool that he had was 10 good fingers still, right? Because he never stuck his finger in the hole between two moving beams, all right? That's what the spud nut bar was for, all right? That lines it up, and then you can put the bolt through it and then put the nut on the other end of the rivet. So he had all of those nifty little tools. We had a general contractor. I mean, he had tools that I had never even seen and didn't even know what the things were called, right? Well, you want your doctor to have all of the necessary tools to go in and to do a successful surgery, as I understand it. Uh, I was underneath uh, anesthesia for a little bit longer because one of the wire probes broke and they had to, to call for a replacement and go through the process of you know, making sure it was all ready to go for the procedure. Um, and I'm glad that they had that extra tool on hand, right? Because I would not want them just, well, you know what, here's a wire coat hanger, I think it'll work. No, all right. Uh, you want them to have the right tools. Well, this is the sufficiency of Scripture, folks. It's going to give you the right tools to live your life. God is giving you everything that you need to be a thoroughly, perfectly outfitted Christian. Uh, this perfect Christian, perfectly accounted out of the Scripture for his work, whether you're a minister or a spiritually-minded layman. The Word of God is what? you need. So it will enable you to meet all of the demands of life and ministry and righteous living. The word not only accomplished, this is in the life of the man of God, but in all who follow him. So let's go over to Ephesians chapter 4 for just a minute and look at uh, verses 11 through 13. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 4. Well, let's just pick it up. Uh, verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's what the Word of God does. It perfects you. So if you're reading the Word of God, using the Word of God, it'll give you what you need. Here's, I think, one of the great, greatest tragedies of Christians as an individual or Christian families. You know you have troubles and struggles in life, do you not? I mean, we all do. But where do we turn for the guidance and the counsel? Young parents, do we turn to Bay Area Parenting Magazine? Um, when we begin to have some mental struggles, do we turn to psychology that directs us away from the mind of Christ? And by the way, there are over 200 different schools of psychology. They all don't agree with themselves. 
when we get into trouble, do we rely on the counsel of a friend? All right. Uh, you know what that's called? That's called cheers, right? Where you sit around the bar counter and you get the counsel from uh, people that don't know Christ. And instead of going to the scriptures. And so, look, there's wonderful resources. Uh, we try to put those out on our literature rack out here. When you, right when you come in the double glass doors, there's all kinds of topics. If you don't see uh, something on the topic that you're dealing with, I guarantee you that if you'll just go to that website and uh, look it up, you can find guidance on that particular topic. There's, there's more and more of those things that are, are coming into place. I mean, all kinds of things, folks, that the Word of God deals with. Um, bulimia, anorexia, cutting, all right, uh, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, lesbianism, all of these things that believers can be tempted with and struggle with. The Word of God is sufficient to help us with these things. It has the answers. We don't need to go looking anywhere else other than the Word of God. And this is what a seasoned saint knew. And so the better you are, the younger that you learn this. The Word of God has everything that you need. All right. Now, um, here's another thing. Let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 4 now, verses 17. Um, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. When his co-workers either had to change location or in some cases deserted him and opposition came against him, he wasn't alone. God was with him. He was conscious of the Lord's presence. The Lord stood with him. Jesus said in the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And um, I remember my daughter, Abby, having a, um, a confrontation. She butted heads with me on this, uh, on a Sunday that I preached this. This is the second command in the Great Commission. The first command is to make disciples. And you do that by three participles, going, baptizing, teaching. The second verb, it's an, it's an um, exclamatory uh, interjection verb here. Lo, it means behold, look at this, gaze at this, fix your mind on this concept. I am with you. Do you know what we need to focus on tonight? He's here right now. He's with us. He's with our church, folks. Let's not lose sight of that. This morning, we were in children's Sunday school looking at Joshua chapter 8, where the children of Israel went up against Ai after they had just defeated Jericho. And remember, Achan had taken some of the accursed things that were dedicated to the Lord. He stole them. He saw, he coveted, he took and he put them underneath his tent. And um, then they went to Ai, and Joshua sent some scouts, and they said, we don't need the whole army. Don't make the whole nation come up here. We can handle this one very easily. Send maybe 3,000. Joshua thought it over, sent 300. They went up against Ai, and they were routed. 36 of them died, and they were chased down the hill 
like uh, people running from a beehive and they were defeated. And Joshua uh, went before the Lord. He was brokenhearted. He was devastated. He said, God, what happened? What are we going to do? Because your name is not going to receive the glory and the honor. And the Lord showed him the sin of Achan. But the idea here was that God was not going to be with Israel because of their sin. And Joshua was like, God, if you're not going to be with us, we're done. We need your presence. And then the Lord said, look, this is what you do. You repent. And then my presence comes back to the people and you can go forward. And that's what they did. And so tonight, the Lord, his presence is with us. And then we see his conquering presence here in the second half of verse 18. I'm sorry, second half of verse 17. Then strengthen me that by the preaching might be fully known that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Hey, do we have Paul in a lion's den story somewhere? All right. Um, maybe the, these were the gladiator games. And Paul had been thrown into the gladiator ring. And uh, he had to face that horrible beast. But the Lord delivered him. The Lord was with him. The Lord's conquering presence. His confirming presence. Uh, that by the preaching, that the gospel might be fully known. That all the Gentiles might hear. And so God was with him in that great commission. Uh, then we see... Uh, the controlling presence of the Lord. Uh, God is working in our circumstances. And then in verse 18, his continuing presence. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is why Paul can write, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can do that. So these are the five things that uh, Paul knew and that we can know. And so here uh, he had fought the fight and he had won. Uh, he knew that heaven is a better place. All right. Are you ready? Here comes the next big bolt here. All right. The big idea flashed at you. Develop the perspective of an aged saint. He knew that leadership had to be trained. That was number three. Number four, he knew the scriptures to be sufficient. And number five, he knew that God was always with him. And so remember, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Learn these five things from the perspective of an age saint. Learn them now, and you'll have more blessings on your course. So tonight, fight the good fight, run the race, finish the course.